Amen. It's good to get to worship again this morning with a little extra sleep. Uh, last night, we were going to bed. I was thinking, how amazing would it be if we could somehow work it out so that every night we got an extra hour of sleep? Um, we are continuing. Uh, I'm Ryan, by the way, one of the pastors, and it's great to get to preach again this week. We're continuing in our series, Matthew 5, or sorry, Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew 5 this morning. And so we are going to look at Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up, follow along. It'll also be up here on the screen. You can follow along up there. If you are physically able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word? And then at the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. You say, thanks be to God. Starting in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with the accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you that we get to sit in this difficult teaching. Um, I pray that we would not shy away from it, but Lord, that we would hear what you have to say and apply it to our hearts. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us in great power this morning. You'd be in our midst encourage, challenge, confront, convict, guide. Lord, illuminate your scriptures and lead us into all truth. Lead us into the way of everlasting life that we find alone in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you help this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Inside Out, uh, if you haven't seen it, Put that on the top of your list of movies to go see is a touching 2000, I think 2016 Pixar film that follows the life of, and the emotions of Riley, an 11-year-old girl whose life is turned upside down when her family decides to move across country. And the genius of the film, of course, is that it is told from the perspective of her emotions, right? Joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger, who are... Uh, humorously kind of personified as these characters inside of her head. And you so, so throughout the film, as she encounters these different events, you see these touching moments of wonder, these tearful moments of, of loss, and the nerve-wracking situations that trigger anxiety, like when she thinks, as long as I go to school, this new school, as long as I'm not the only one called on, first thing to stand up, and of course, the very first thing that happens, she gets called on to stand up and panics. Um, but perhaps some of the most relatable scenes are those that trigger anger. 
uh, a kid being told what to do and not liking it, you know, having to eat some mashed potatoes or broccoli or something like that that they don't want, so they throw a temper tantrum and throw their plate. Or an adult, they peer inside the, the head of the parents as well, an adult feeling disrespected or underappreciated and responding with an outburst, right? These kinds of experiences, all of them, the whole range of them, are all too familiar, and of course that's the appeal of the film. Well, last week in our series, we looked at a pivotal passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and we explored the nature of the righteousness that Jesus is calling his followers to. And we talked about how each one of the the subsequent six weeks, this week and the next five weeks, we're going to be unpacking and exploring uh, an issue from the law, an issue of, of, of worship and following Christ uh, that would be an, an unpacking of the, the righteousness that Jesus is calling his disciples to through the Old Testament lens and taking a deeper look at that. And so this week, we are looking at the first exegesis, the first kind of studied explanation, and that is the issue of anger, the issue of anger. And we'll look at two parts of this. First, the destructiveness of anger and the the restoration of peace, the restoration that peace brings. So we start with the destructiveness. Uh, Jesus begins this with this example of the sixth commandment from the law of Moses. He says, you shall not murder, right? So the, the Mosaic law provided direction for how on how the Israelites, as the people of God, were to live in relation to God as well as in relation to each other and to the people of the surrounding nations. And on the list of the most important laws is the prohibition of murder. And this word doesn't just refer to killing in general, such as in wartime. It instead refers to the intentional, unlawful taking of life. It has the connotation of striking down, of crushing of slaying a person unlawfully. And this is central to the law because in the Judeo-Christian worldview, human beings are image bearers of God, their creator. We possess not only extraordinary capacities for thought and language and creation and so on, but we we are moral and spiritual beings. We are embodied souls. And as such, every human being has intrinsic value and dignity, regardless of age or ability or gender or ethnicity or any other distinguishing characteristic. All human beings are sacred. And so to destroy human life, to willfully, lawfully, uh, unlawfully strike down an image bearer is tantamount to trying to destroy God himself. And that's why it's so significant. But here, Jesus teaches, us, Jesus teaches us that there's a far broader issue to address, and that is the issue of anger. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So it's not only murder that's an attack on God's creation. Anger is as well. Now, there are different kinds of anger that we can think about. 
the best kind of anger is to be angry over something that is wrong. It's like some injustice, some, some trauma, some abuse, some evil in this world. And this is the kind of anger that God himself possesses and, and exhibits. It's righteous anger. It's an anger that Jesus shows at the temple, right, when he's flipping over the, the tables and driving out the, the greedy traders there who are trying to take advantage of God's people who are just coming to worship. This is good anger, but sadly, it's often the rarest. More often, we feel angry about a situation. You know, we're, we're driving to some meeting trying to, don't do this, but trying to you know, eat soup, uh, and we're driving and putting on our makeup in the car or something like that, and it's like, pours the soup on our shirt uh, right before some important meeting, or it's making a thoughtless decision, being frustrated with yourself and the way that you responded. These experiences are they're normal and they're morally neutral, so long, of course, as they don't lead us to respond in sin against God or against others. But Jesus does not have either those kinds of anger in mind here. Rather, the anger that Jesus is talking about is personal. It's interpersonal. It's frustration that is directed at someone. And there's certainly a wide spectrum of this kind of anger, isn't there? So Jesus gives examples of the internal anger, right? The way that this is manifesting inside of you. You're angry with your brother. As well as that kind of the external manifestations, demonstrations of that. So it's you know, raka is, is insulting. It means empty. It's kind of insulting someone's intelligence. It's kind of like the modern day stupid or idiot or if your buddy the elf, cotton-headed ninny muggins. So you can, ins- you know, it's insulting someone's intelligence or fool is ins- insulting someone's character. So this can look like a lot of things. It can look like something as small as harboring a grudge at someone because they inconvenienced you. You know, so a roommate didn't wash their dishes. A child didn't pick up their toys. A neighbor left their dog's droppings in the front yard, you know? And you respond by getting a little bit frustrated. Maybe there's a little bit of grumbling going on. You know, if you've been to a, you know, like a Thai restaurant, they have the Thai spice rating, right? Zero to 10. This is kind of in the like two to three range. The little emoji guy is still smiling, you know. Uh, It can look like responding irritably at some personal offense, making passive-aggressive comments to a spouse or family member who did something you didn't like, using snide comments or disparaging humor to show your superiority over a peer, or giving a friend the cold shoulder because they did that thing again whatever that thing is to you. This gets us more into the like four to five range. It can look like overt efforts to undermine someone who you don't like, gossiping about someone in the church, bitterly sabotaging a frenemy's career, resentfully gaslighting a coworker in order to get your way. This is the, you know, things are, are heating up here. We're in the seven range. The guy's starting to frown. He's sweating. He's looking a little uncomfortable. 
And of course, in the most extreme cases, it can look like outright vitriol. It's a barrage of personal attacks, an assassination of someone's character, an enraged lashing out on social media. And these can even lead up to the threshold of violence. So now we're hitting 9-10. The emoji is red in the face, there's steam coming out of the ears, and like his head is doing the like volcano explosion, right? All of this, from 1 to 10, is the anger of animosity, personal animosity. And it is everywhere. It is everywhere. It's so prevalent. We see it on the news. We see it in social media. We see it in our workplace. We see it, heartbreakingly, in our families. But it's not like it's a a mysterious phenomenon that we're observing from a distance, right? All this mess that's out there that we don't play a role in. It's happening out there because it's happening in here, in all of us. We are angry at the system that has let us down and all the people that are behind that. We're angry at parents who fail us, siblings who let us down, friends who ghost us. We're angry at coworkers who don't do things the way we want. We're angry at politicians and angry at the people who voted for the politicians. We're angry at people who drive too slow. And then we're also angry at people who drive too fast. We are just angry, right? Honestly, I think the reason for the division and the breakdown of civil discourse in our country right now is not only a conflict of political vision or the effects of technology, although those are significant. It's, it's because of the angry condition of our hearts. Christopher Ashe, in his very thorough book exploring what the Bible says about anger, he identifies four kind of root causes for this kind of anger, this kind of animosity. Control, possessions, desire, and reputation. So control, we want to be in charge, we want things to be our way. Possessions, we want to have the freedom that comes with ownership. Desire, specifically, he talks about sexual desire. We want the affirmation of being pursued, of being desired. And reputation, we want to be held in high esteem by others. And when those things are challenged, when they're threatened, when they're undermined, we respond with anger. And here, Jesus warns us simply, Beware the danger of anger. This kind of anger destroys. It destroys relationships. It wreaks havoc on friendships and families and workplaces. It destroys your health. It absolutely deteriorates your mental and emotional health. Stewing over these kinds of offenses will eat away at you from the inside out. And... It destroys your soul. Those who are angry, who insult, who attack, who tear down, who destroy image bearers, Jesus says they are liable. Liable to judgment, liable to the court. In other words, the Sanhedrin, the highest Jewish court of the day. Liable to the hell of fire. The word here is Gehenna. It was referencing this pungent garbage dump that was just south of Jerusalem that was 
the place where the waste of the city was burned. These warnings are meant to be taken cumulatively to say that animosity, if left unchecked, unresolved, if left to fester, is not only going to destroy our relationships, it's not only going to destroy your, your life and your inner life, it will lead to eternal destruction. You know, there's been a lot of uh, discussion around my house over the last few weeks about all kinds of critters, you know, with Halloween upon us, so bats and spiders, or fighters, as one of my, as my middle kid says, uh, and snakes, snakes. Um, there have been even requests to have a pet snake, <laughs> which Katie and I just shiver at the thought of, because we know exactly how that's going to go. We will come home, the snake will be lost, and it's in our bed or on the couch or something. You know, but what's really so interesting as we've been having these conversations about snakes, we've been reflecting on this, uh, it's really interesting when you think about venomous snakes, the way that they kill is so insidious. It's not like a lot of other animals, you know, a wolf or a bear or a gorilla, which just wins its battle by physical dominance or maybe by, by cunning by, by brute strength, a snake is different. When it bites its prey, from all outward appearances, it just looks like a minor puncture wound, right? You know, it's not fun, but it's survivable. But of course, the real threat is the venom, which will then slowly undo you from the inside out. So on the outside, you look fine, but in reality, you're dying. Not a particularly cheery image, but it's an effective picture of anger. We may look fine on the outside, but on the inside, this harbored animosity will tear us to shreds. Our minds, our hearts, our souls. It's a mortal wound. And so this is, this is serious. But as with any ailment, of course, the very first step towards treatment is awareness of the condition. And so now, let us turn to the cure, the restoration of peace. Uh, Jesus first illustrates the, the practice of peace in talking about how do we respond to this. What is the alternative here? He illustrates the practice of peace, and then that leads us to the principle. And in the practice, he gives us a couple of examples. They're meant to be illustrative, not exhaustive, right? So we take these and deduce the principle uh, first, he gives us an example of a, a personal dispute with a fellow believer, where there's some hurt between you and a fellow Christian, right, another disciple. And then second, he gives us an example of this a formal dispute with someone in the world. So perhaps there's some unpaid debt, there's the possibility of some litigation, some fracturing between you and a colleague, something like that. But note, in both of these examples that Jesus gives us, they uh, both the hypotheticals, you are not the one who is angry. Someone else is angry with you. Something has taken place that has caused them to be angry with you. Maybe you're angry as well. Maybe you're, you're fuming, right? Probably, or else you would have already patched things up. But regardless, the other person is angry with you. And what does Jesus say to do? He says in both cases, you are to go and seek reconciliation. So in that day, if you were at the temple and you're about to present your offering and you remember someone has this thing against you, they're upset with something that you did, Jesus says, leave the offering there. 
go, apologize, mend the relationship, and then return and present your offering. Or if there's some dispute between you and another party, so you were to go and try to work that out, settle the argument, work out the case, make restitution as you're on the way, or else you're going to have to pay the consequences for that. In both these situations, you are not the person that's in control. The other person is angry. You can't control their anger. The other person holds this debt over you that you clearly can't pay. You can't control that. But even though you aren't in control, you should seek to make peace. And so the logic goes, if even when you are not in control, you are to seek to make peace, how much more so should you seek to make peace when you are the one in control? So it's a, it's a how much greater than argument. If we are to prioritize reconciliation with others, even when we are not the one that is angry, how much more so should we seek to make peace with others when we are the ones who are angry? When we are the one that is wounded, offended, who's put off because of some slight against us. So followers of Jesus are to be peacemakers. We're to seek reconciliation. We should take initiative to mend relationships, whether we are upset or someone else is upset with us. We're to ask for and extend forgiveness. We're to be a people who live in peace, who work for peace, who labor for peace. This is the key distinctive of the way of Jesus. But, and this is crucially important, if we stop there, if we hear that and we think, okay, all right, don't murder and be nice. Try to make peace. Well, I'm going to work really hard at that. If that's our response, then we are really in for a world of disappointment, right? Because no matter how hard we try to embody this, no matter how many anger management courses we take, no matter how many books we read and techniques we try to employ, if something doesn't change in here, on the inside of us, the results are not going to last. And if we do that, we'll end up falling into the same trap as the Pharisees. Right? You remember we looked at last week, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The exceeding righteousness, it's not a, it's not a greater quantity. It's not trying to do more things. It's a greater quality. It's a deeper righteousness. It's a righteousness of the heart. Which leads us to the whole principle of this passage. Jesus does not just want us to make peace. He wants our hearts to be governed by peace. If, as we looked at last week, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those whose hearts are fully his, then the kingdom of heaven belongs to those whose hearts are governed by his peace. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we promote peace with our actions because our hearts are directed by, controlled by, overflowing with the peace of Christ. And so we ask, how on earth does that happen? How do I go from my bent towards anger and animosity and hostility to a place of peace? And there are mountains of resources offering all kinds of ideas on how you can find inner peace, right? Self-help books, podcasts, YouTube channels, mindfulness gurus, the suggestions of, of which are endless. 
But despite all of those resources, being inundated with them, right, we still have a world that is in conflict with each other perpetually. Now, according to Jesus, there's only one way, and that is to know that he came to make peace with you. All the primary causes of anger, control, possessions, desire, reputation, they all collectively find their root in one motivation, the desire to be like God. We want the sovereign control that only God has. We seek the honor that only God deserves. And in so doing, we place on ourselves and on those around us a crushing weight. But Jesus came that we might have and know his peace. He came to take that idolatrous weight off of our shoulders. And he came that we might not only know this peace intellectually, rather that we would know it like we know the warmth of early morning sunshine, the sweet aroma of a cup of coffee, or the soothing sound of a gentle flowing brook, by experiencing it personally, truly, genuinely, by receiving his peace ourselves. One commentator says this, he says, in none of the cases in which Jesus became angry was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. More telling yet, when he was unjustly arrested, unfairly tried, illegally beaten, contemptuously spit upon, crucified, mocked, when in fact he had every reason for his ego to be involved, then, as Peter says, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. From his parched lips came forth rather those gracious words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, was, God, was vilified, insulted, attacked, rejected, betrayed, tortured, killed. He endured the rage of mankind against God. But he also absorbed the wrath of God against the sin of mankind. He took the full weight and responsibility of the punishment for our anger. And he took all of that for us so that now in turning to him, we receive his kingdom. We receive his gracious forgiveness. We can be born anew, be set free from our bondage to anger and receive his very presence. And it's his forgiveness, his life, his freedom, his presence that leads us to peace. He and he alone will bring peace to our souls and peace to our lives. Ruth uh, Schneck, amongst other journalists, uh, cataloged the extraordinary life of a woman whose, whose life was chain, uh, changed in 1972 by napalm bombing in Vietnam. And she writes this, millions have seen Nick Oot's Pulitzer Prize winning photo of Kim Phuc Phan Thi. On June 8, 1972, a napalm bomb was dropped on her village. And Kim Phuc, who was just nine years old at the time, ran crying from her hiding place in the village temple in Vietnam. 
His picture shows Fuchs' arms outstretched in terror and pain, skin flapping from her arm as she cried, Nongkwa, Nongkwa, too hot, too hot. Doctors said Kim would not survive, but after 14 months in the hospital and 17 surgeries, she returned to her family. But despite the miraculous recovery, Kim was seldom free from pain and nightmares and great anger. She said, the inside of me was like hatred as high as a mountain, and my bitterness was black as old coffee. I hated my life. I hated all people who were normal because I was not normal. I wanted to die many times. Doctors helped heal my wounds, but they couldn't heal my heart. While spending time in a library, Kim found a Bible and began reading the New Testament. And she said, the more I read, the more I felt confused. I wondered which was true, my religion or the Bible. Well, Kim's brother-in-law had a friend who was a Christian, and so uh, she arranged to see him with her list of questions. And after they talked, the friend invited Kim to visit his church for a Christmas service. And at the end of the service, she came to a turning point in her life. She said, I could not wait to trust the Lord. Jesus helped me learn to forgive my enemies. And I finally had some peace in my heart. Now when I look at my scars or suffer pain, I'm thankful the Lord put his mark on my body to remind me that he is with me all the time. John 20 says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, the resurrected Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He said, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus willingly offered his body to be broken in order that the broken pieces of our heart and our lives and our souls might be made whole. And he calls us to a life of peacemaking, of restoration, of radical selfless love and sacrifice. But he only calls us to that because he gave us himself. Because he did it first. And he is all we need for that task. Look at him again today. Look at him again and find the, the peace that your soul needs.